Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slush, I'm the editor at the GRC Institute. And today we have with us our CEO, Naomi Burley, and back by popular demand, Carol Ferguson, our expert in all things regulatory and enforcement. Hi, Carol, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Kwame, and um, Naomi, it's lovely to be speaking with you as well. Lovely to have you, Carol. These are always super popular, so we're going to clock the numbers on these these podcasts. Oh, that's nice. Hello, everybody, <laughs> and, and thank you for listening to us because we, we do take a little bit of time to try to get um, things that are going to interest you and which you can take back to talk with your companies and your and other employees about. So... Please, if you've got a, an issue you want to talk us to talk about, please send them in to Naomi, please. Um, okay, so... Uh, so today we're going to be having a bit of a chat about greenwashing. And, you know, everybody's been following ASIC's releases. They'd know that ASIC has been quite... I'm serious about this. I think there have been 35 regulatory interventions since last May. Um, and, you know, they published a document in telling you how to avoid greenwashing and maybe some people have not been reading that I don't know and then of course there's Treasury also recently put out their own consultation second consultation I think on climate change related disclosures which might have some overlap here in how people think about this just climate change related disclosures and risks and that element but that is beyond the point today we're going to have a chat with our expert Carol. Carol so what is happening in greenwashing and why is this critical? Okay, so ASIC warned businesses that for 2023, one of its focuses was going to be on greenwashing and and enforcement activity targeting sustainable um, um, risk um, and disclosure of climate risks. So people were on fair notice that they needed to, to really have a consideration of what they were saying in the public domain. That being said, there are two major cases which have been lodged with the federal court, one against Mercer, superannuation, and the other against Vanguard, both of which are very big entities and not usually the subject of of enforcement proceedings. So it goes to show that ASIC is A, prepared to take on the big boys, but B, is serious about about, um, wanting to take regulatory action in this space. So... The ASIC issued a very helpful um, note on information sheet Info 271 on how to avoid greenwashing when offering or promoting sustainability-related products. Um, So greenwashing is the practice of misrepresenting the extent to which a financial product or investment strategy is environmentally friendly, sustainable or ethical. So if we look at the facts of of Mercer as an example, Mercer said that it was an ESG product and had all these lovely sort of green features. And then, but if you dealt into the portfolio for the the investment, it contained gambling, petrol companies, et cetera, and which were totally contrary to an ESG portfolio. So it, it was one of the things where you just thought, what was the due diligence for that particular um, offering? And how is it possible that those um, equities ended up in the portfolio? Was it simply that they were the usual um, fallbacks for a equity portfolio and so somebody didn't think about it? Or was it actually a, you know, a intentional thing? But unfortunately... 
the problem is is that um, with with greenwashing, it doesn't matter whether the investors were actually misled or whether the whether the licensee intended to mislead. So it's a very, very high threshold. So it's really, really important that people really consider what it is that they're putting into their portfolios. So with the Vanguard one as an example, substantially it was invested in ESG products, but it also had some um, credit bonds and every portfolio has bonds and it has cash because they're the things that you liquidate in order to pay distributions to your investors. And those bonds were not ESG. And, and when you look at the, def, the ability for an entity to be caught then, irrespective of whether Vanguard had, had intended to mislead, irrespective of whether it was a mistake, they are then caught. And so it's a fairly strong and, dare one to say, low threshold to get into this space because you know, as a as a um, entity, it's up to you to ensure that your due diligence processes, in fact, encompass this greenwashing um, space. So, when when producing documentations, documentation, sorry, it's really important that you have a strong look at 1013D1 and 1013DA because they're the ones that focus on misleading and deceptive conduct and what the actual um, content of a PDS should be. And then there are um, consequences under the ASIC Act as well. Um, Regulatory Guide 65 and the Section 1013 DA Disclosure Guidelines. And as I've said before, Info 271, which was how to avoid greenwashing. So it's about taking a little bit of time to go back and have a consideration of what what are the things in a portfolio before you actually issue a product which is going to say that. But having said that, what people are doing is kind of getting fuzzy around the edges. So it's really a greenwashing risk products are ones where the product labeling is not true to label. So that's the first thing. Does the DA, um, sorry, does the due diligence um, make uh, go to what are the underlying investments right down to a dollar in the portfolio. So if they've said that it's a, um, a green ESG sustainable blah 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 um, portfolio, you need to know where every dollar is invested, not sort of. So that's the first thing. You can't have buzzwords you know, you, you can't use and throw around environmentally sustainable and those sorts of things and vague language. So you need to be really precise about what the investments are of a particular portfolio. You need to, to have a look at what the sustainability targets that you're trying to invest in. So it can be a fund as an, as an instance which has got a um, mix of various investments. But if you say we're going to invest substantially in ESG products, what does substantially mean? And I think from ASIC's perspective, that would mean not quite 100%, but over 80% at the very least would be a substantial amount and maybe closer to 90%. So you need to be very careful about that. You need to be very careful about things you quote. So there are people out in the market who are, who are called green Green fluencers, love it. I'm, I love that word, a green fluencer. And so, you know, Greta um, Thunberg and people like that are green fluencers. And so, in quoting 
anyone of that kind in a, in a PDS can actually be misleading because it seems to, um, to give a kind of imprimatur from those people to the particular product. And then getting back to misleading promotional statements. So, so having worked out what's the um, product label for the, for the fund and the targets, are you then ignoring that and saying it's, it is an ESG fund when it is only substantially an ESG fund? So it's those sorts of things that are very critical things. So when you look at product land, <coughs> sorry, product labelling and branding, you need to make sure that where you use the word sustainable and sustainability, that it's it's actually true, and it applies to any investment options within an investment product. So if you've got a master fund um, with a number of underlying options, as a, as an issuer. You need to go to the issuers of all of those funds to ensure that their products actually match what you say. So you need to, to know the granularity of those portfolios um, to make certain that they actually match what the, the um, options are for the fund. And that's a lot of due diligence for fund managers. And, and it's certainly an area where, you know, you need as compliance to really step in to ensure that the product is actually true to label. This isn't one where you can step back and say, oh, well, look, the fund managers know what they're doing because you actually um, need to ensure that the product actually meets those requirements. And so the marketing collateral um, in relation to the PDS needs also to sustain that. So as I've said, you know, you need to make certain when you're advertising that the marketing folk really understand what they're marketing and again, that you are reviewing all marketing documents initially in relation to that particular fund and you set out specific guidelines so that it's not just a matter of, oh, well, near enough is good enough because if you're going to be caught because you didn't intend to mislead, then you need to be very careful about it. Carol, I, I think that's a really important point you've raised there because uh, let's be honest, the process of due diligence is quite a specialised understanding of how to undertake that activity and what those parameters need to be. And it really isn't something that is in the skill set normally of a funds manager. That's not what they're looking at. They're, they're, you know, their area of expertise is around returns and around, you know, balancing all of those things for the financial outcome, not all of these other quite technical details. So I do think that this is a bit where if someone, if you get pushback from that area of the business, you can gently point out to them this is this is my remit this is what I do every day you know and this is what I should be doing and you concentrate on what you do really well yeah and and I think that the the answer to it is if we're offering an international share fund and you've got 50% of it invested in Australian equities then that is not an international share fund and and it so it's really important that you and the CIO are sitting down and having a really strong conversation so that you, he or she understands where this is coming from and, and is ensuring that these products actually meet, are true to label. Yeah. 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 So when you look at the Mercer one, as, as I've said, that it, it alleged that, sorry, um, the product said that it was sustainable plus, yay, well, it's more than sustainable. And it excluded... Plus what, though? <laughs> well, as we know now, it included investments in companies involved in um, 
carbon fossil fuels, alcohol production and gambling. Yay. And it was suitable for members deeply committed to sustainability. Well, if I was somebody deeply committed to sustainability, I doubt whether I'd be investing in a risk report or in Glencore, etc. Um, and so that, that's the real problem with it. It's, it's almost like it was too easy for ASIC when you're looking at it to, to, to bring a case against it. And we're talking about, again, one of the largest companies in Australia and the people who do um, management of, um, uh, sorry, of very many superannuation funds for other entities and who white label their, their superannuation offerings. So you're not talking about someone who is an ingenue in the market. The people who are at Mercer's are incredibly skilled. And it, stri it strikes me that this is one that just got through the keeper. But yeah. having through to the keeper, the problem is, is that, you know, so what? ASIC doesn't care. And they are well, and neither do the investors. To to be <clears throat> frank, Carol, you know, from an investor point of view, if you've gone to the trouble of doing that, you've been warned that potentially there are lower returns on some of these. You yeah. know, that, I mean, that's what you're warned in the market. Then you've made a conscious decision about that product, and to be, have been misled is really not on. And I think the other the other thing you're talking about you're talking about substantially versus is versus sort of this balance of it. I think the other thing that organisations need to keep in mind, because we've had the feedback from members that now organisations then throw up their hands and go, oh, right, well, we might, won't make any green claims at all and then, you know, we'll stay out of trouble. You know, let's let's throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think a little bit of common sense and a little bit of structure and framework around it. Sure, if if 40% of those products had have been vaguely in that green space, and then you don't add a petroleum product and, you you know, you have neutral things yeah. in the other area, you would have been fine. But you're not offsetting carbon here yeah. uh, to, to get your balance. You've got yeah. to look at the whole picture. And and that's what makes it sort of incredible in some, in some respects that they actually have included those. Unless it came through some in other investment vehicle that they just thought was okay and the due diligence didn't extend down to it but yeah. but it seems like these were direct equities and so therefore you know they they clearly have they may have a policy as an example that all funds invest in those three areas yeah, yeah. and then they, they need to go back to that and they need to go back to the all funds um yeah um, and, and and I think I think this is the thing. It's it's definitely in compliance's wheelhouse to be across this kind of thing. This is completely in the same space as third party risk, whether it's IT, cyber, privacy, whatever it might be. This this is your bread and butter. So people in the organisation need need you to be able to cast an eye over it and have that conversation. You're absolutely right, Carol. They should be sitting at the same table when these are going through. This isn't pro forma administration. No. This is genuine due diligence and getting and getting across. And if you had that framework and you had that discipline, it doesn't actually have to be as hard. But yeah, I've heard a lot of people saying that their organisations now saying, "Oh, it's too hard." It's not. You just needed to be have good hygiene. Well, and it's very it different from your modern slavery obligations to not invest in companies that are engaged in child labour, etc. And as if as an organisation you've made a determination that you will abide by those obligations and not invest, say, in Nike when it was invest, 
it was, you know, with the children in Indonesia, you know, you've got to say to yourself, what do we do in those scenarios and how do we ensure that that isn't going to happen? How is it that we don't in, um, invest in a fly-by-night? How is it that we don't invest in companies that are known as, as you know, criminal-type companies, et cetera? And, and certainly the due diligence would catch those so it's very important that it just extends more widely to all of the investments within these funds, as opposed to just a portion of them. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> sorry, I so took you that, off track. <laughs> sorry. No, I was going to say, with, with the 35 interventions and, of course, having Mercer and Vanguard as these two big examples of companies, do you think that that will get the message across to the rest of the regulated entities, sort of well, seeing what ASIC is looking for? Yeah, look, can I say to you that when money management came out and said Vanguard was um, subject to greenwashing um, proceedings, I, I had a moment of, oh, my God, um, because they have such a strong regulatory um, um, reputation. And if you were to think of the companies that might have a problem with greenwashing, Vanguard is not one of them. So it shows how easy it is, really, for a company to be caught by this. Um, it certainly is not a, a space which is occupied by the sort of, you know, more feral end of the market. And so when you've got Mercer's and Vanguard already being caught, I'd say that, you know, ASIC's actions for the rest of the year are going to be easy. Um, they can take on anyone. And that's yeah. what indicated by doing, taking this to the federal court, they're actually saying, we will take on anyone. We do not care how big you are, and we want to make certain that we have heads on sticks. And, and, and that's a very powerful message. For the rest of the market, it, there were also very clear examples of, here's where we think the line is. You know, mm. it's, it's, as we know, in a lot of instances, this kind of activity can be better than guidance yes. because... It's practical. It's happened to somebody. You can look at the detail and go, right, this is where ASIC's comfortable. This is where they think you're having a lend. Okay, great. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, the, the real thing from a compliance perspective is to follow the outcomes of this, legis of this litigation carefully. And when it comes down, whichever way it falls on the, on the, the, the balance is to go back to your investment people and make sure they know what the consequences are and then go back to your directors who are signing off on the PDSs to ensure that they themselves know. So the consequences are very clear. It's both within the entity itself, so those in the investment folk, but it's also the wider group of your directors who are engaged in, in signing off on material. So I think it's quite important that you start that education process now, yeah. um, certainly with marketing as well, and that it's, it's not dictatorial, but it's important that everybody engages with the problem and, yeah. and identify how it is that you can improve disclosure in these particular areas, how it is that you identify what are potentially problematic investments and how you then go back to the actual documents that are constituting the fund, so the yeah. internal um, what is this fund going to look like document and really look at it and say, is that achievable? Yeah. And if it's not achievable, that then then the, the nuances are made at that stage because if, yes. if, as an example, there isn't enough depth in the Australian market 
for a company to be able to invest in solely ESG investments, then it's important that you actually look at what other investments are complementary to those. So it may be that there are some other ones that you can feed into the mix, but if you've got a very popular fund and say it gets very quickly up to 20, 30, 50 million, say, and the ASX, you know, doesn't have that depth, where do you get your equities? And yeah. does it allow you to go overseas to get them from green companies that are overseas, et cetera? So it's really important that you're looking not just at the nascent part of the fund, but the popularity of it. So if the fund is going to be a good one and, you know, on early sort of thought the Vanguard and Mercer ones were were, were popular, um, where do you get your money? Where, where do you put your investments? Yeah. And yeah, I think that's really good. And and don't just start at the end with the marketing stuff as the first call because, again, we've heard a lot of this emerging te um, terminology now called green squashing. Let's just get rid of all our green claims altogether. There's nothing wrong with the idea of the product. It's certainly what customers are after. So you've got a market there. You've just got to have a structure around, you know, as Carol's outlined, um, ensuring that you can actually it is actually what it says on the label. And so yeah. don't just don't just get marketing to shut down everything and erase the word green from everything. Think sensibly, think creatively, because there's there's opportunity here, not just um, not just bad lessons to learn. Yeah, and and I think it's it's very important. This is where compliance really needs to be proactive, because it isn't just like an ordinary fund where you just check that the portfolio is 95% invested in Australian equities and Etc. You actually need to go down to the granularity of the fund, and that is a much more um, um, work-intensive operation than your usual portfolio examination. So it's really important that you um, allocate sufficient time to be able to go through all of the investments of the fund, and that you you actually do what you need to do to ensure that every investment in the fund goes through a particular screen, as an example. So if an if the investment manager wants to to change the or to acquire anything, that it it actually comes up as a oh I'd like to inquire. So they're not immediately in the market because unless they've had sign-off on particular um, um, companies before, then and if they want to take up with a new company, so ABC say that they're, they've got, you know, fantastic ESG, qualified, blah, 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 but nobody's actually really dug down deep into them, then they have to be a more thoughtful investment than an investment in a company which is known for its, its um, ESG um, practices. And would you say that this isn't inconsistent with the work that your organisation should have all been already been doing in, say, TM, your target market determinations anyway? Yeah, well, TM, uh, target market determinations is about who invests in the fund. Mm. So the TMD for an ESG fund is somebody who wants to invest in an ESG fund, I mean, essentially. Yeah. This is about what's in the fund, and it's yeah. not that... that um, that sort of level of um, control and review is undertaken. Mm. So for an Australian equity fund, as an example, they just are in the market all day buying Australian equities. Yeah. Um, and, but in this one, it's about 
do get a list of the companies that you know you can invest in and they're the ones that you invest in not the 100% of the Australian equity market yeah if that gotcha. makes sense. yeah yeah and the other thing is that the compliance people have also got to have a real finger on the pulse of what happens with the ASG um, um, notifications by listed companies to the ASX. So when they put a report out about their ESG um, position, it's really critical that someone is looking at those and ensuring that they meet up with the ESG requirements of the fund. So it is more administratively difficult. Um, it can be, on the other hand, you know, hopefully more profitable than other funds. But at the same time, you have to set up really strong controls and compliance has to be actively involved in all decision-making in relation to it and that you have your better people on it to ensure that that happens. And you regularly meet with them, you talk with the fund managers, et cetera, so that they're up to date on what the regulation is in relation to this space. Excellent. Well, I think we might um, sort of bring the podcast to a conclusion there. I guess any last um, bits of wisdom advice? I know one is read the info sheet 271, but... Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and you know, you've still got your old requirements of, of 1013D, but hey, yeah. the, the thing about it is to remember the reputational damage that can come from a fund which is may be only a small com component of all of your your fund offerings and when you look at vanguard and mercer you know it's not a huge component of the funds that they offer but it may be the one that is the big trip for them so it's very very important that if you want to maintain your your the reputation of your of your um, company and who doesn't then you're making certain that you're actually following it and more to the point that Compliance are going to be the people who, in some respects, may have to carry the can for it. And so you do not want to be a sitting duck by not having undertaken appropriate reviews and controls in relation to it. Because otherwise, as, as sadly, sometimes can be thrown, thrown out and baby with the bathwater and, and, you know, carry the can for organisations. So it's very, very important that you take complete control of the things that you need to to make certain that this isn't going to be a problem for the future. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Carol, and thank you, Naomi. Very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute, and the music was produced by Rob Neary.